This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. One of the areas that we've been talking about, Carol, as a Mm -hmm. key economic indicator, uh, and it's one that's close to home, is the rental market in New York City. And it's a complicated one to some extent. In other ways, it's very simple, which is if the rents are going, they're just, there's so many important elements to this. So let's have someone smarter than me explain it all to us. And that is Prashant Gopal. He is U.S. real estate reporter for Bloomberg. He's got a great story about the New York City rental market pushed to the breaking point by tenant debts. Uh, This is a serious story. Prashant joins us on the phone from Massachusetts. Uh, Prashant, tell us what you found. Well, you know, New York in many ways is vulnerable to the current um, economic crisis that the country is facing. Maybe um, more than a lot of cities, because for one thing, it's the biggest rental city. Two thirds of, um, of the households are, are are renting, and also um, even before COVID, obviously there was uh, an affordability crisis in place, so people were struggling to make the rent even before. They started to lose these jobs in, in big numbers. And many of the renters are in professions that are hard hit. So the restaurants and bars and nail salons and, and you know, the people who clean the offices. Um, so, uh, you know, there, a lot of them are having trouble paying their rent. Right. And this is what we've been worried about, Prashant, right? That in terms of the economic shutdown, it's it's kind of, you know, the trickle-down effect, if you will, and and that's, you know, initially, I think we didn't think about the real estate market right away. And then we started to think like, oh, wait a minute, you know, what if people, you know, can't pay their rents and, you know, or companies can't pay their rents, whether it's small businesses, you know, and, and then the impact of this becomes just so much wider. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the people who were most impacted by this um, uh, this economic crisis are, are renters, really, because those are the people who are, um, like I said, they're in these jobs that are hard hit. They um, make less money. Um, so when they don't pay, there's an effect that, you know, it actually moves up the chain to a certain extent. So you have um, landlords, especially lo- small landlords, right. um, who have, have bills to pay. They have to pay for utilities, and the city's giving them no break on their property taxes, they have to pay late penalties if they're late with that, and um, and they have to pay their mortgages. So that affects banks. So, you know, this has widespread impacts. Yeah. So, want to bring in the editor of the magazine now, Joel Weber. He joins us from Massachusetts. So, Joel, real estate cities. This is right in the Business Week wheelhouse. Help us understand this in the, in the context of what you're trying to do in terms of continuing to tell the story of this pandemic and the economic aftermath. Well, I mean, the the spiraling cost of this thing just just keeps happening, right? And I I think there's the the economic cost of it, and then there's a the human cost of it. And mm-hmm. this story is sort of an example where the the two meet, and we really 
um, don't have a way out yet. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, the, the things that have been kind of put in place um, felt like temporary stopgap measures. And, and as the, the crisis sort of lingers, um, I think we're all trying to figure out, you know, what, what kind of implications this will ultimately have. Uh, and and Prashant, I just wanted to kind of bring that back to you. And you know, the New York State enacted the the Tenant Safe Harbor Act um, last month to stop evictions, as you note in the story. And and wondering, you know, what what other kinds of policy uh, actions might we see from uh, legislatures um, and similar effects going forward? Well, let me linger on this just a little bit because I think it's important. Like, so the the Tenant Safe Harbor Act, what that does is it prevents um, evictions of people who were impacted by, um, you know, economic victims of COVID-19. So that prevents a very short-term problem, which is, you know, um, a, a wave of evictions and a potential spike in homelessness, which could have been, you know, devastating to New York. So that's great that you prevent that. But what happens is um, there's a long-term effect because tenants are in hock to their landlords. Right. They owe large amounts of money that they will never be able to repay. And um, with each month that passes, they owe more. And then their their credit gets sh- is shot. And it's, uh, you know, because of this. And they, they're not going to be able to maybe very easily move to another apartment. So they're, they're you know, they're, with each potential solution here, there are, um, you know, consequences to that. And the, the real solution might be the federal government stepping in and providing rent relief in, in, a, in a very big way. But that has not happened. I mean, there's been, I think, some resistance in Congress um, uh, from Republicans in the Senate. So we haven't really seen that yet. Right. I think of people who had the discussion during the financial crisis who said, you know what, maybe we should have just gone in and shored up all of those bad mortgages, made mortgage payments, you know, kept people yeah. in their homes, would have saved the economy, would have protected those financial investments that were based on the mortgages, you know. And I do wonder if, as we try to figure out the rest of this crisis and what's the best way to help out individuals, I feel like, um, do you come in and give them some kind of relief? Because, you know, you think about if they, if landlords do lose tenants and there are people who can't find jobs, they can't find new tenants potentially. I mean, there's this ugly cycle, Prashant, that just keeps on going. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's what it is. It's like, you know, do you, um, if you do provide that rent relief, I mean, some people are worried that, you know, it's a disincentive for people to work or something like that, right? But, but by doing that, you end up uh, preventing all these knock-on effects, which are things that may be very difficult to recover from, yeah. you know, uh, deteriorating buildings, you know, landlords not making repairs, uh, you know, going, landlords going to foreclosure. And, you know, um, you could just see how that could spiral out of control. Right. All right. Prashant Kopal, thank you so much. U.S. real estate reporter for Bloomberg. Joel Weber, final word to you. Give us a preview of next week's issue. Can you do that? Give us a hint. Um, so I think we've got some really fun story. It's interesting, right? There's like there's the crises stories, and yeah. we kind of all, um, you know, it feels like this magnetic pull towards them, and and we have to do those. Um, and we will, you know, with great interest and public service duty, and and all of the great stuff that I think. The heroism of journalism requires 
Uh, and then on the other side, there's also just like sort of some fun stories all of a sudden. So I'm, I'm just going to leave it broad and evasive like that and say that there's a little bit of both. I got all a fun right. one for you. We just talked with the Mondelez CEO and people are cooking with Oreos, Joel. Yeah, well, you know, Oreos <laughs> um, have been around for a while. They're yes. they're trusted and, and tried and true. Yeah, um, exactly. And you know, if you bring them out in um, our home, uh, they disappear very quickly. Uh, whether but, or not they're dunked in milk, or you know, I, I've never attempted to cook with them. But you know, exactly. I'll I'll, uh, I'll take someone's word for it. They're All a right, staple. Joel Weber, you're the best. Uh, thank have you so a much. Have a good weekend. weekend in Massachusetts. Joining us, they are the editor of the magazine. This is Bloomberg Business week with carol masser and jason kelly on bloomberg radio gotta say i'm so excited we're gonna get into this story because i feel like there has been a theme this week about the changing world order Uh, in today's business week economics it is about a new world order for the coronavirus era and we're starting to see what it looks like bloomberg news executive editor for international government at uh, bloomberg as i said on the phone from london rosalind matheson joining us um rosalind nice to have you here with jason and myself Tell us about this era that we're in, and I do wonder about how the history books are going to look back at it and the economic books are going to look back at it and the changes that we're seeing. Well, it's very interesting because, if anything, what we're seeing in a way is an acceleration and a hardening of trends that we were already seeing. It's like the veneer in a way is being stripped away and countries are showing themselves for what they are. China, for example, is very much out and unapologetic with their recent security law in Hong Kong something they probably would not have done just a few years ago. But now they're making a judgment call that they've amassed enough power to get away with it, that they can wear the punishments that come. That's one thing that we're going to see accelerating. Meanwhile, the US is further withdrawing from international organisations and showing a willingness to criticise long-standing allies like Germany. It's very much a one-to-one focused game from them now with their rivalry with China. So aside from that, it's a country that really is turning inward. Uh, One way that we will see things possibly being redrawn is that there's a bit of unity and strength coming into Europe. And that's despite Brexit, despite the squabbling that you see between North and South and so on. And that's really under Angela Merkel's steady hand. And particularly, we could see a new role for middle countries, middle powers, if you like, like Australia, Japan, Canada, South Korea, and so on, starting to express themselves more, basically saying we can't rely on the U.S. here, so we'll band together and do something ourselves. So, Roz, I'm so glad you brought that up about Europe because I was I was reading a story, some of the coverage that came out of, I think, your team because you have this massive role in the Bloomberg uh, empire, and it was about the an election at the EU group, keep me honest here, that Ireland, uh, the finance minister of Ireland, sort of won this surprise victory. And so you had these countries in Europe even, these sort of smaller to mid-sized economies who were going to be maybe a little more important important or at least have a louder voice, that's kind of interesting in the midst of all this, right? Well, that's right. And and in fact, that was a victory for the smaller states, as you said, and the four biggest economies in Europe had supported an alternate candidate to lead what's known as the Eurogroup. That's the finance ministers, really, within the EU. So that was a real backlash against those. And in fact, it was quite a tight result that went very late last night and caused unusual excitement, really, for the Eurogroup beyond what we'd normally have. But it's, it's really a way that we're seeing these countries saying, well, we need to put ourselves more out there. There is risk to our economies, of course, if we do, for one thing, by taking on China more assertively. 
But um, given that we're not seeing a, a, a real concerted global leadership, you call it to the G7, the G20 or whatever, or to other institutions that these countries are saying, well, we'll have to form new alliances ourselves and move those alliances around. And they'll be based on different things, perhaps, than we saw those groupings based on before. And that's really where we're going to see a key shift happening. I feel like a key line in this story by Alan Crawford, Roz, is the problem is that there's no obvious form to debate the shape of the post-pandemic world. And as increasingly we see countries look inward, right, they're not getting together (laughs) and talking about these issues on a global scale. I'm curious, what are the implications? And is it to be expected that, you know, the U.S. dominated for a long time, right? And other, you know, parts of the world before that. And now, is it a natural progression that maybe China becomes the leader? Well, that's a very interesting question because the U.S., of course, really was sort of the glue that held the post-war institutions together, the global order uh, in a way, like it led the way through these institutions, it provided a strong security umbrella for many parts of the world, the Pacific, Europe, and so on. And it really is withdrawing from that. And those institutions are now in fundamental states of change. And the idea of the G7 or a G20 really coming out with some kind of coherent statement or policy at this point is kind of moot because we've been seeing for years under the Trump administration those meetings fall into disarray and disagreement. So as you say, what, where does that leave the idea of kind of organised responses and coherent responses? And it, it will form perhaps in, in new and different ways with these smaller groupings, what's known as the Quad which is the U.S., of course, also about India, Japan and Australia. Um, And it might be China-led organisations as well. But at the same time, the U.S. still is the biggest economy on the planet. Its success is the success of other countries too. Um, So there will be always a role for the U.S. It's just how big that role will be. And so, Roz, as you think about, as we think about all the time, this upcoming presidential election here in the United States, how does that factor in? And and I guess the real question is, is how much of this is sort of um, unstoppable to, to some extent and how much of it may be arrested if there is a change in power here in the United States? Well, that's absolutely the big wild card, of course. If Donald Trump wins again, you can imagine him being emboldened and America First becoming sort of America First with a big exclamation mark at the end, even more so um, a continuation of his policies, but even more dramatically so, a greater rupturing of the established world order. And room for other actors also to come in, Russia and Turkey included, not just China. But equally, if Joe Biden wins, and even if there is that greater outreach to allies, and perhaps a more collaborative mood, there can't be a return to the way things were. Because the mood in America has changed too much amongst voters. And equally, the mood in other countries has changed. People say it's about America only, but it's also about the way that other countries now see themselves in the world. So you'll see greater protectionism greater unilateral behavior and so on, regardless of who is in the White House um, after November. Yeah. Hey, just quickly, 30 seconds, Roz. I mean, as a result of this, you know, does that mean economies are going to struggle more because they're not necessarily playing on the global stage or not necessarily? Just quickly. Well, that's a very interesting question because we are seeing, of course, countries no longer thinking about trade as a unifying factor. In fact, they're using trade as a weapon in politics. And that really does raise the risk of what we see is increasing trade wars, not just between the US and China, but also US and Europe and other countries and China. So definitely that atmosphere of less collaboration does create economic risk with it. 
All right. Roz Matheson, you are the best. Thanks for uh, spending so some good. of your Friday evening with us. Uh, Executive Editor for International Government for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from London. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We are still in the midst of a major national and global health crisis. So let's understand where we are when it comes to COVID-19. We turn again to Dr. Penny Wheeler, the president and CEO of Alina Health, joining us on the phone from Minnesota. This, of course, is a not-for-profit healthcare system based there in Minneapolis, 13 hospitals, more than 90 clinics across the state of Minnesota and western Wisconsin. Dr. Wheeler, really nice to have you back with us. It's nice to be back with you. Thank you. So tell us what it looks like, uh, what this outbreak looks like on the ground there in Minnesota, because I know it's different across the country. And I think the last time we talked to you, it it was a few weeks, maybe a couple months ago, and a lot has changed in the world. Yeah, yeah, no, and a lot of change in our world. So not only did we have the COVID crisis, but uh, sitting in the middle of Minneapolis where the senseless killing of George Floyd took place, we had a lot of uh, civil unrest um, that occurred beyond that. So it was kind of crisis upon crisis here. Um, In terms of the COVID, we actually are a a little island here right now, a bit in the Midwest uh, that is seeing less than the Sun Belt and uh, the Western um, coast is seeing. You know, so we have had, uh, since, since May, had a diminution of the number of people who required hospitalization down collectively from like 600 to, um, sorry about that, given, given uh, the 600 to about 200. And we in our um, geography um, have had also a decline in hospitalization rates even after the number of uh, significant protests right. that occurred. Right. Well, that's yeah, Carol, Carol brought that up earlier, <laughs> interestingly, um, when we were talking about some of these outbreaks. And, and yeah. I think people wore masks, right? Yeah, people did wear masks. I think that one of the things that's saving us, and I was so glad to hear your public service announcement, is really it gets to a concern about caution fatigue. But wearing masks, physical distancing, washing hands, staying home while sick, those things still really matter. And I think we're really worried about the exponential effects that this can take off. Uh, if we lower our guard, I think even with some of the preventative measures, like in a state like California, we've seen uh, that uh, with some of that relaxation comes higher uh, caseloads and, sadly, higher hospitalizations and deaths as well. What, what are you hearing about, you know, officials and where they are? I think earlier this week you met with uh, some of your state legislators on your response, the state's response, and rebuilding. Um, what's on everybody's minds? Because I do feel like there's this push and pull between wanting to move forward, get the economy back on track, but we're still kind of constantly looking behind us or in front of us, you know, about the rising virus cases that we're seeing around the country. I think there's still fear of a second wave. Um, so I'm just curious what what that meeting was all about and, and what came yeah. out of it. I think it was exactly that. It was worry about this balancing. You know, there's not lost on us the economic hit that this virus is causing us, but now seeing what's happening in so many other states and geographies, the economic hit greater if you if you reduce caution as you reopen. So I think that uh, largely the testimony was about that. And so what's your biggest concern? And, and maybe you've already said it, Dr. Wheeler, as you look around the country and, you know, I, I feel like 
you're sitting in a, a similar place to where we are here in the tri-state area where it's like we sort of did the work, the numbers are down, they're trending in the right direction, and yet they are wildly trending in the wrong direction in the rest of the country. So what do people who are in these, as you say, sort of oases, these sort of comfortable or, or slightly more comfortable places, what do we do at a time like this? What do we need to be worried yeah. about? I think caution, you know, is like, for example, one of the big questions in front of our legislature was, do we go to universal masking? Mm. So do we do, you know, as we open up, can we continue to do that as smartly as possible to avoid these exponential rises in other geographies? So it's really hard to close things back down once you've reopened. Can you reopen them and have enough, you know, civic responsibility, you know, to do that? We know that for example, wearing masks, you know, yes, it protects you a little bit, but about 80% of the protection goes to the people around you right, right. That, that you're protecting from. So if we can do those things, then I think we can open up more safely and won't see these unfortunate rises. We're now just starting to see a leading indicator of uh, some case rising in our geographies. And, and I worry as I look around, we're doing pretty well as a geography so far in masking, but our mobility right. increases increased a lot. And People, naturally, there's caution fatigue. But Dr. Happens. Wheeler, don't you find that amazing? I mean, Jason and I kind of laugh about it, but we don't laugh about it, that this whole idea of just wear a mask. You know, you're yeah. not losing your, your rights as a citizen. It's just right. about keeping others safe. And I do find it kind of baffling that we're still struggling with this. And we just, unfortunately, only have about 30 seconds here. But don't you yeah. find that frustrating? I find it totally and wholeheartedly frustrating. Uh, that doesn't impinge on our, our, our liberties, and quite honestly, it's a way in service to the rest of humanity by protecting others from getting the virus if we may be an asymptomatic carrier ourselves. So please wear masks. Yeah. All right. We're going to be – we're right there with you. We're going to keep totally. beating this drum. Uh, Dr. Betty Wheeler, we really appreciate it. President and CEO of Alina Health, joining us on the phone from Minnesota. Love catching up with her and getting that perspective uh, from the Midwest. And, man, Minneapolis, they have been through a lot, as she pointed out. She's such a nice Midwesterner because she said, please wear a mask. As you please and I are like, just wear a mask. Wear a mask. <laughs> Darn it. Just do Sometimes it. Sometimes stronger off air. <laughs> Yeah, but but we're we're a family show, so yeah, we're gonna exactly. keep it clean. You're New Jersey nice. If that's a thing. <laughs> New Jersey nice. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home, honey? Please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Dan Pipitone is with us, co-founder of Trade Zero America. He joins us on the phone in Brooklyn. And this, as we've got a market that's pretty much at its highs of the session, just got about 20 minutes left in the trading day, and we're on track for some gains for the week overall. Uh, Dan, good to have you here with Jason and myself. Remind us about your platform, because you guys are um, zero commissions, correct? And talk to us a little bit about how it all works. Sure. We are a zero commission broker, uh, more geared toward the active investor. A lot of the tools that we offer are geared to uh, those people who are looking for a little bit more than essentially just a a free stock trading mobile app. Many of our customers um, trade both directions. They trade equally on both the long and the short side. 
uh, and we give fair treatment to, uh, to both of those styles of trading. Uh, additionally, the access that we provide, uh, we span the, the entire uh, market hours from 4 a.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern. So what are you seeing in terms of demand uh, for this platform right now, Dan? Because, you know, we've read a lot about Robinhood and, and other um, platforms that are really appealing at this time because people are stuck at home. They've got a little more time. And especially the younger set seem to be discovering uh, the stock market, especially as we've seen this pretty nice run. Yes. Well, for sure, we've had a, we've had a captive audience for the better part of the last four or five months. Uh, and what we've seen is that there have been a lot of new entrants to the marketplace. Uh, some of our competitors really have done a great job of, of really demystifying the stock market. Uh, but at, at some point, it's these new these newly entrants to the market uh, are left wanting more and left wanting a little bit more access, uh, better tools, and a better handle on, um, on their trading. And so, uh, you know, when, when looking at a mobile app and only seeing the last price instead of the bid and the ask is not enough. Uh, when, when traders and, and, and new investors are graduating to the next level, we're seeing a lot of attention in, in what we do. Hey, I want to know a little bit more about the demographics. Who is using your platform and what kind of trading activity have you seen and maybe changes in that activity over the last few months? We had a great story. Jason and I talked about it, uh, Dan, earlier in the week about Citadel um, saying that retail traders now account for about a fifth of stock market trading and as much as a quarter on the most active days. That's what they're seeing. What are you seeing? Yeah, we, we since January we've we've had huge increases in both volume uh, and new entrants. What's uh, huge? The What's huge? Uh, trading up two hundred fifty percent since January. Uh, the the attention to the short side and trading on the short side at our firm is up over two hundred percent in that time. And as I mentioned, a lot of the millennial investors, uh, people like to talk about these as, as really the, the new drivers of the market. Um, are, are now, you know, uh, left wanting to, uh, to have more access and more tools to the market. So we're seeing a lot of these millennials sort of um, trade up to a, a platform like the one that we have. Mm-hmm. So, Dan, let's talk about, um, you know, some of the stocks out there that you're seeing uh, when it comes to this pandemic. What's providing some investment opportunity out there? I mean, this is a health crisis, and I know one of the things that you guys are, are looking at is, are, you know, names that stand to benefit here. Sure. Uh, lots of attention in, in sort of what we call the COVID sector. A lot of the uh, treatment providers uh, uh, and those companies that are searching out vaccines teams like the Novavax, the Modernas, those companies that have uh, partnered with the U.S. government, and the U.S. government has, has, has given them grants uh, and sponsored their development of uh, various vaccines. Uh, Enovial Pharmaceuticals is another one. And some smaller cap names. Uh, these have been uh, very actively trading on our platform uh, on both an intraday and overnight basis. Uh, companies like Sorrento Therapeutics, SRNE, uh, and uh, Altimune, another one, a symbol ALT, which has had a nice run the last few days. So you guys get to see a lot of data, and that's, you know, kind of interesting in terms of where people are trading, what they're interested in, and whether they're, you know, taking a short or long position. I am curious about some of those uh, pharma or biotech companies, whether it's Novavax. I mean, this is a stock that's had a really, really good run. It's up about... God, it's up 2,200, almost 2,300% this year. So are what's the trend that you're seeing? Are people shorting it at this point? 
You know, on an intraday basis, you know, a lot of these pops that are occurring in the morning based on overnight news, it's really giving traders the opportunity to many times uh, fade the open, so to speak, where they'll, you know, they'll short based on the, the news that's come out and then and then look to buy back a couple of points lower. Um, the news cycle has really created the volatility that gives the opportunity for traders to, you know, to play these things on an intraday basis, both long and short. So you're not necessarily seeing more traders. I know what you're saying. They're getting in and out. They love the movement. But you're not seeing more Correct. take maybe a long position versus a short or vice versa? We're not. We're not. Most of the, most of the clientele and the traders that we're dealing with, uh, uh, for the most part, are, uh, are holding, uh, not mm-hmm. holding positions overnight. Okay. Interesting. So how do you make this, I mean, for your business's sake, Dan, if we get back to whatever the next normal is going to be, how do you hang on to these customers? Well, by keeping fresh, by ensuring that the, the tools and the technology that you're providing is always a step ahead, uh, by, by empowering the investor with ease of access of, of both onboarding the platform and also uh, banking, moving funds back and forth from, from the brokerage firm to their bank account, mm. um, and, and really just um, you know, providing uh, better tools. All right. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. Dan Pipitone, co-founder of Trade Zero America, joining us on the phone from Brooklyn. Listen, this has been uh, what? an interesting time for these types of companies because, yeah. as Dan said at the top, it's a captive audience in many ways. And you've got, um, you know, even in, in tough economic times, there are still people who want to take advantage of this market. They're seeing this market, especially we've talked a lot about this today and probably we'll talk more about it. These tech names that have been on an absolute run yeah. over the course of this year and uh, even with that tough march. And by tech, you mean pure tech as well as biotech because yes. because of the, the push not only to find a vaccine, but also, you know, various therapies, the you know, modalities to, to treat uh, the ailment, yeah. to treat the virus at different uh, levels. You know, everybody and there's so much money that's being committed from the government and elsewhere. And so you're really seeing that sector really uh, get a big boost. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.